do we need like a whole new programming environment to take advantage of LLMs? Because like when I think about like where you would take, be able to take advantage of LLMs and the things it has to offer, like is our current programming environment the best one for that? And I'd be hard pressed to just say yes. A lot of what people are thinking about when they're talking about LLMs and software is LLMs write some type of code that we would traditionally write. And this other view, this alternative view of LLMs as a backend and whatnot, yeah. is saying, just screw the code. The code. Yeah. Just, 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 do, just do it all in LLMs, right? Yeah, I hope uh, that the world is going to have little bits of logic and computation just strewn about everywhere as casually as we see writing is today. Hey, this is Shree. I'm a YC alum and a research engineer focused on natural language processing for search. And this is Will. I'm a YC alumni and an independent researcher who has worked across e-commerce, cryptocurrency, and financial industries. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it, an optimistic look at the road ahead. We're two guys discussing edgy, fringe, and overlooked technologies over a couple of drinks. Our show this week has one segment in which we let our optimism run wild about this week's topic. Uh, <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think uh, there's been a lot going on in the world of technology so that we are just going to skip to the fun parts because honestly, the, the first part of just what it is, I don't, I don't think we know exactly what it is yet. And so, so, but, but we will hold the suspense just a little bit longer. So, uh, uh, Shri, what are we drinking this week? <laughs> yes. Uh, so this week I have a health aid kombucha. Oh, yeah. Fruit and tangerine. Mm. And I have Lubanzi, a, I guess, wine in a can from South Africa named after a wandering dog. Uh, yeah, so go figure. <laughs> we'll we'll see if it's any good. Yes. So, um, so yeah, like, what are we talking about this week that we're like, psych, no four segments. We're just going to have one segment. Yes. Uh, so this is a bit of a um, quick pivot emergency topic. Uh, my, my prediction is that large language models are eating software and will soon be a fundamental building block of computation. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason I think this is that LLMs now can follow instructions, use tools, and they can even run locally on devices such as mobile phones. So I just wanted to use this episode to parse out this crazy new world and what it means for us as software developers and entrepreneurs. Yeah, I found all the news that's been coming out, even though GPT's been around for a while, I don't think many of us really f fully realize the extent, which uh, doesn't sp uh, speak very well on our part because we're supposed to be a technology about the future. And I think we only started covering like multimodal stuff like, I don't know, season two, three or something like that. Uh, so, yeah. so yeah, but I don't think we sounded the, the alarms uh, nearly as loudly. So I think one of the difficulties with all the news that's coming out about LLMs recently is simply how to frame what we're seeing. Because I think with other technologies, you have some time to absorb what's going on. But the pace of improvement on all the generative AI is 
just relatively quick. I mean, like even six months ago, six to eight months ago, like, oh, okay, generative AI can't draw fingers. Maybe we'll wait another year or two. But I mean, it only took a couple months, right? So, so -hmm. like how... How are we thinking about this world? And so one of the things I hope to get out of this conversation uh, with you, Sri, is just that framework of thinking about like making sense of the things that we're seeing. Yeah, sure. So I think that right now there's a lot of excitement, but also worry about what do what do LLMs mean for writing code uh, and software as we do it today? Right, so you can use LLMs to generate code that you paste into your existing code bases. You can use them to debug things, inspect logs, write pull requests, et cetera, et cetera. And those are all well and good. But I think that what I want to jump to is what happens when you take LLMs for granted that they are as baked into the future program programming environments as a if statement or a loop, right? Yeah, what, what if LLMs were as essential as compilers are to programming uh, languages? Yeah, exactly. And so, or even, you know, uh, if you draw an analogy, you had assembly, you had high-level compiled languages, and then you started having dynamic interpreted languages, and that changed the economics of software development. And, and the way in which software is written. And then if you take it even further, LLMs are maybe the latest binding, most loosely structured possible way of specifying logic and, and uh, computation. And I think that it is a successor to a lot of the way that we think about program, programming now uh, in, in the same way that uh, languages like Python and JavaScript really opened up a new class of software that uh, were not possible with things like C++, for example. Uh, And so the way that I've been thinking about LLMs is that they potentially allow software to be a lot more extensible. Because if you think about a chat interface uh, like ChatGPT, it's just a way to inject logic into a running system, right? Every time you give it an instruction or a prompt, uh, you are changing its internal structure in some way such that it's now following the instructions that you just told it. That's not something that we have right now with uh, code as, as we know it. You can have programs that have plugin systems and things like this, but it's not quite as simple as the end user going into the software and, and telling it to fundamentally change its behavior. So I think the yeah. extensibility piece is, is a big one. Um, I think I'm interested in composability. So combining uh, the results across different APIs, different data sources, without necessarily having to worry about data model mismatches or having to write converter code or, or translation code. So now, previously, software was kind of siloed. You you had to do a lot of work in order to get two disparate software uh, uh, softwares to talk to each other. But now I think LLMs are able to understand the semantics of the data, the input and output of these APIs and tools, 
and are able to basically massage and munge the data so that you can convert seamlessly from one format to another. And so does that make software more composable? Uh, that's, that's another piece. I think the third pillar is that things can be much more dynamic and ephemeral. So right now, software is written ahead of time and you have to write the interfaces in a certain way. Uh, you you write the logic to behave in a certain way, and that's what you ship to the user, and that's how it works uh, for the duration of you know that that piece of software until you do the next release. Uh, but I think can you generate interfaces just in time? Can you uh, can you generate things that are custom crafted to the situation at hand and then disappear? And and you can do this because there's basically zero marginal cost to creating um, those interfaces. They don't need to be built by humans. They can be generated by the LLM. So I think those are the three things, basically making software extensible, making software composable, and then making it sort of dynamic and ephemeral. Yeah, I think those are pretty interesting points. I think the two, well, first of all, it's about time, I guess, that programmers got their comeuppance because we are usually the ones that are automating away other people's jobs. And we, I don't know about other programmers, but I've kind of had a cavalier attitude towards it before where I'm like, ah, just deal with it. Um, <laughs> musicians, if your art is being commoditized, just do more concerts. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. Um, right. And so now it's like we have finally done it where we have kind of uh, developed technology that actually threatens our own livelihoods. And yep. it's about time that we also deal with the fallout from that. And maybe we can look to some of the other uh, professions and industries and see how they've dealt with it. And so for some, like the newspaper, they're still in decline. So I don't know that I would take <laughs> something from them. Uh, but, you know, music, I would say, like, even after Napster and, like, all the P2P stuff, like, uh, what is it, BitTorrent, um, you know, it's still thriving. And so maybe there's something to that. And so I, too, think that we will figure something out. But um, I don't think that computer science is going to be the lucrative default that parents would push their kids towards because usually yeah. that's always some sort of lagging indicator. And in addition to like all the people in boot camps and stuff. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see, I guess we acted asked in a previous episode, like is the human need for software insatiable? And so if it, we make it easier, will we just want more software or is there some sort of limit? And so it's yeah. questionable whether there's that limit with LLMs. And so so I think to that, that that's kind of one of the, the questions in my mind uh, uh, when, when you brought that up. Um, do you have any more to add to that before I guess, I guess start thinking about some of the stuff that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I just want to add that I've heard the, the phrase being thrown around that this is the Gutenberg moment, right? Like the the invention of the printing press. And if you think about what writing was before the invention of the printing press, it was this thing that monks did. Yeah, uh, There were very few 
types of literature. There were there weren't really any type of literature. There were sort of phys- philosophical and religious discourses that were being transcribed by specialized uh, people. And then now, if you look at how ubiquitous writing is, I mean, there's writing everywhere. There's writing on this like random throwaway piece of uh, you know glass that on like tells me what stalls. it is. <laughs> Yeah, toilet stalls, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, like, and so, and that's a good thing because it just means that the cost of of literacy and of communication has dropped to the point where we don't think anything of the idea that there is writing everywhere, right, on every possible surface. And so, mm-hmm. if you draw that analogy, um, and and to answer your question of do we have an insatiable demand for software, well. If you were to ask before the invention of the printing press, is there an insatiable <laughs> right. demand for writing? Uh-huh. I don't think anybody would think, oh yeah, there's going to be writing uh, on on toilet stalls or you right. know little pamphlets or things. And so, yeah, I hope uh, that the world is going to have little bits of logic and computation just strewn about everywhere as casually as we see writing is today. Like that yeah. would be a wonderful world then maybe we can actually have enchanted objects in the world around us rather than these things that are mass produced. And, and uh, I guess like the, the SAS model is basically mass produced. Actually, any software yeah. that we use nowadays besides maybe handcrafted open source stuff, like most of that that you would pay for would be mass produced software. So yeah, maybe we'd get artisanal software, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, artisanal artisanal software, or just like um, where where the where the uh, human software programmer adds a little bit of a bug here and there just to show that they're human, right? Slight <laughs> imperfections. Right, 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 right. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I think the you know the thing that I'm excited about is how does software change? I'm almost just bored of the idea of generating python code and and uh you know from llms and pasting that into an existing uh, code base i'm over it that that concept is like a true technimista right (laughs) right bored of this already throws it on the ground (laughs) (laughs) and and it's crazy because that that was only possible you know in the last whatever like right two months two months right and i'm like i'm i'm done i this don't don't bother me with this kind of software writing like I want to jump to to what I described or outlined earlier is just yeah you know let's let's skip to the fun stuff yeah yeah so so I think when the to recap the three that you outlined I have more to add myself but we'll we'll get to those later but the the three that you talked about yourself is like the extensibility of software one two the composability software and three like the just in time ephemeral nature of software which kind of goes against the grain of how software is produced today, which I I think is probably one of the more interesting ones actually. But I think the extensibility one, I thought about this part a little bit. And when I think about the hard and easy parts about programming, one of the concepts that I was developing in my head was the idea of a scale invariant programming language. So like sometimes when you have things the, the way that you would do things quick and dirty are not the same sort of things that like p- 
Pokemon evolve into what you would do in a battle-hardened production system. They're usually <laughs> like completely different tacks that you have to take. And so as a result, the early decisions in your architecture end up being like the the stuff that you just have to live with until you get enough people to like rewrite the entire thing or at least like rewrite that part of the thing um, or take the, you can convince the PM that they need to do this or like they just throw more bodies at the problem, say <laughs> engineers just deal with this, right? Yeah. And so I think uh, one exciting potential for me in, in the extensibility of software is is the idea that you can re-architect something. I mean, given that you have the open source, right? This is not about like proprietary software. Maybe in, in like, as I'm saying that, I don't know if LLMs can like deconstruct binary into some sort of like code that hmm. you can edit. But barring that, um, you know, th this is what I'm, I'm thinking about in terms of extensibility. Because like there's some... Like functions are very useful in helping us compose code. But one of the things it doesn't seem to be very good at is, is if you have a function and you want to change something in the middle of it, the best we have are like callbacks or like when you pass in blocks mm -hmm. as first class functions into it. And then sometimes you can do other things like... Um, what is it? The preprocessors in Rust in which you derive something and you can kind of, based on the implemented stuff, you can derive other like properties from it given that you set the traits on it um, mm -hmm. but, so that you can gain more functionality as a result of implementing base functionality that that extensible functionality is based on, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, these are all techniques but then at some point there's this difficulty in like changing things at a higher level and so i think the uh, my hope is that llms can look at your across your entire code base spot these commonalities and then be able to pull out or extract or simplify things so that you can actually understand it and maybe like so on one hand, maybe that's a good thing because then you keep things like programs, computer understandable. The other way things can go is that people just don't care because they're like, oh, I guess it works. Hmm. LLM, just figure it out. We'll just keep it complicated because you understand it. doesn't mean I have to understand it, right? I mean, yeah. like that's not nearly as crazy because like no, none of us really understand what's happening on chip anymore. Like no one hmm. person understands like what's happening on a chip anymore and Neither do most of us care, right? We just want it to run fast for, you know, whatever our thing. So maybe yeah. it'll turn into something like that. I think the, the key thing I'm saying is the part about how the path to the quick and dirty isn't the same path that you would do for a production battle hardened system like they're actually yep. like two completely different tacks it's not like one evolves to the other like you pick one and right. unless you're willing to do the hard turn to the other one you just keep going down to a dead end that ah, okay, okay. more and more pain and so hopefully yep. llms will help you bridge that so that you can jump over because yeah, most yeah, teams yeah. aren't willing to pay the price to do that Mm, okay. I uh, yeah. So I think the, those are two sides of the same coin uh, because I think in in a type of startup scenario, 
you never do the uh, the battle hardening step, right? And and that's what almost you're talking never, about, yeah, right? You just like never, yeah. throw you know code into the garbage fire that is your code base, and then <laughs> right, like yeah. until it's it's completely untenable. And then I think the other aspect, which maybe shows my bias, is that in in big companies you never do the the quick and dirty thing. Like you oh, always yeah. spec out the like how you're going to do it properly and it requires a lot of just coordination like i was saying you talk to the pm they outline their requirements the software engineer like a tech lead you know thinks about the engineering design and like that's a slow process and so neither one is great right because you know you don't want to write a bunch of garbage code and then you also don't want to be limited by this the these experts and yeah, the how, bureaucracy how well of the bureaucracy like writing stuff yeah exactly so maybe what you can do then are you imagining that you write the quick and dirty code and then you you ask the llm like hey take this and make it production ready and it like refactors the code um, finding the commonalities and abstractions well, so I'm starting off with something that is not nearly as crazy as some of my the later things I want to talk about. But yeah. like this would just be you write code as usual, but then when you notice that things are getting more difficult, you fire up the LLM and say, like, explore the code through like where are the points in which it's getting hard to um, edit or we're editing a lot of it because you can you have the entire git repo history so it should mm -hmm. be able to pull some statistics about like where things are difficult or things are have a lot of authors or like whatever metric that you think i don't know like however you frame right. it so that it's able to identify and pull out common things or like maybe like common patterns that you're doing across the the board because with like code bases with relatively large teams you might have like a ui component like a select pull down but you have like five versions of them and when a new guy comes in he's like i don't know which one it is i'll just pick whatever one copy that and it could be yeah. like an old version and so like the llm could like be able to like put them all into one library if it makes sense or maybe two because like two of them are actually like really different in functionality because like you know, like you could go way overboard, have like a single component that you use for every select pull down, but it becomes too complicated to use because there's just too many options because there's many different kind of pull downs from the more, yeah. the regular kind to the thing you type and there's autocomplete to like things that have like little pictures, like whatever it is, right? So, so yeah, yeah I mean, like maybe LLMs would be able to help pull these common abstractions out and then point to everybody like they can do the refactoring so much quicker than like a program I, saying i need another week to do this or like try to sneak it in with every pr that they have and then now you have like some inconsistency and then everybody that comes in tries to do it but only completes the halfway and then your code base even worse is a palimpsest of like different layers of everybody who tried to like do the code conversion but wasn't able to successfully convert it all right so yeah 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 i see okay like basically it's doing the work that everyone thinks they should do but never, nobody ever gets uh, paid to do which is to do all this code hygiene and refactoring right yeah yeah okay. yeah like think of it as a super linter i guess but yeah, for architectural level sort of stuff <laughs> that yeah that's pretty cool uh i 
I like that. Yeah, so is that what you meant by extensibility? Because that's extensibility within the same team, but I didn't mm. know whether you were also talking about extensibility from the end user perspective. Yeah, no, I think I was thinking more of that runtime and user extensibility, but uh, I, yeah, I see, I, I think that this is good because like we're not going to just jump to a world where, it, you know, LLMs are modifying code at runtime or the logic at runtime just yet for the foreseeable future all the existing code bases that we have are going to continue to uh, be very much the same but in this in this world where you have a super linter uh, it allows those teams to ship faster uh, than they otherwise would yeah so this is where I think the world is unknown. Like, I think one of the things I struggle with that I've told you in the pregame is like, what are the limits of this thing? Because like, unless you've had direct experience with setting it about a task, it's hard to say like whether it'd be able to do that at all or not. Because like in the case where you're like saying, okay, like, yeah, maybe like it's not for the end user sort of thing. But then I was thinking, like I said earlier, would it be able to say like deconstruct a WASM file? and give you back code or like a minimized JSON, like minimize JavaScript file and then be able to give you back readable code. And then you extensive extend it that way. I mean, mm. I, um, and then even better, I think is if somebody used the LLM to design a system that was actually extensible so that, um, yeah, it would be able to, so that would be more along the lines of what sort of frameworks and runtimes and programming languages are more conducive to LLMs working in them. But I think that we can leave that to a later part of the episode because I think that's even a little bit further out there. So, but I'm saying like, yeah. even though like we tried to like fence off the limits of our discussion, it's just a footnote to say, I don't know where the limits are on this thing. That's why it makes it kind of difficult to talk about because like I could think of like some far-fetched thing like it's just now maybe that would work for that. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good point. I mean, what are some of the crazy far-fetched things that you don't think would work or you're not sure would work? Well, so one of the things that I've been using ChatGPT, both the 3.5 and the 4 model, is to think together and do design work together. And I found that it's just not that insightful. And so it, I even like put my... So I talked to it for this episode. <laughs> And I asked it to think about like, what are the things that would be changes? And it mentioned a couple things, but it was very kind of the, the things that you say you would be bored with. Like it would mm -hmm. be near term. Like it framed it into the terms of how programming is today yeah. and not really like how it would be tomorrow. And I even explicitly told it to not say the things that I've already said, but like extend upon it and create commentary for it. But it just wasn't very good at it. And I found that this to be the case for a lot of the more, I guess, ab uh, 
like design type of work that I've mm. tried to throw at it. So like I've, I think where it excels is more as an intern where it's well known, like the answers are well known. It's just, it's a hassle for you to go find it. And yep. so that's the sort of thing that it excels at, not like putting stuff together. Um, and so yeah. I would say that I don't think we're going to be out of a job anytime soon, especially people that, think about things that are higher level than just doing the thing. I think it's mostly the bootcamp programmers that are going to be in, prob in trouble if they don't skill up in other ways quickly. So, yeah. so I think there's that. Well, I'll hand it to over to you while I think about like the other answers to your question. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> um, yeah. So I think you're talking about the creativity piece basically like there was this article where somebody asked uh gpt4 to design a, a programming language and it was very mundane like it was basically a mashup of typescript and python yeah and, yeah um, they kept asking it to like have some imaginative features that incorporate llms bake them into the standard library or the design of the language and it was okay but it was kind of bland uh and so i think that's what you're getting at like when you try right. to use it as a thought partner it's not never really exceeds your right creativity. right it, it never exceeds the bounds of what i can look up on the internet but the the thing is that the unsure part of this which is the answer to your question is i don't know how fast this stuff can improve yeah on the, on this side i actually have some thoughts so one of the interesting things is that a lot of the excitement so far around LLMs has been uh, open AI models, specifically the uh, GPT series of models. Yeah. And those are uh, trained using a process called RLHF, reinforcement learning from human feedback. Uh, mm -hmm. This is how open AI enforces, uh, to some extent, the safety of those models by making sure it does not generate outlandish offensive content uh, and that's why it always like hedges a bit when you prompt it uh to to do something or say something outside of sort of the bounds mm. of i don't know polite society I see. I see. yeah 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 uh and one of the things that is interesting now is that i might have mentioned at the beginning of the episode that we have models that can run locally and are competitive with uh, uh, models like GPT-3. But the thing is that they're open source. The The weights are open source. These are models like Llama, which is technically not open source. Uh, the, it was released yeah. non-commercially by Facebook. There's Llama. There's Alpaca, which is now an uh, instruction fine-tuned uh, Llama model. But basically, the thing is that now the community can train it however they want, right? And they don't mm. have to do RLHF. And so you might have models now which have a much more like broad, expansive view rather than being constrained to almost this kind of like people-pleasing, like just say exactly what's safe, which is kind of the the tone yeah, that I get yeah. from like ChatGPT. So what you're saying is maybe what I'm getting is as a result of the fine-tuned training and not the actual potential of the technology. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, 
it's similar to like actually if you use dolly or something like that uh it's not a very good model these days compared to some of what people are doing with uh, stable diffusion uh, mm-hmm. variants because yeah uh, dolly was trained in, in exactly the way that OpenAI trained it where stable diffusion people are doing all kinds of crazy things to get it to generate a much vaster you know degree of, of outputs right mm-hmm. and so i think we're going to see that with llms yeah with dolly like it looks coherent when you have a small thumbnail but when i zoomed in there were a lot of like details that were just incoherent but and then I saw a mid-journey. I'm like, oh, this is way more coherent, even at the small details. And I haven't checked out a lot of the latest, like, I think mid-journey has a V5 now. I haven't yeah, checked it yeah. out, but apparently it can do fingers. So you can, yeah, it, it's it's very good. And so I think that uh, there's a, an article that we'll put in the show notes that LLMs are having their uh, stable diffusion moment by Simon mm-hmm. Wilson. Yeah. And I think that kind of gets to maybe the heart of your concern. Like if you just looked at, at image generation as Dali, you'd be like, eh, this is kind of bland. Like this is not going to be that amazing of a new artistic medium. But if you look at things right. like mid journey or dream booth or the things like this, like people are doing crazy stuff and that's because yeah. they get to control how these things are trained. Mm-hmm. So then, so then it could very well be possible. Like what, what I'm talking about to have some sort of thinking partner. I just need to find a way to train it than than uh than than anything else yeah i i guess so 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 if you had a thinking partner what how would it help in in creating software i think well so for me i've been thinking about a database in the browser and so architecturally like what does this mean um and i only have like a couple of prior art to look at and so sometimes there are decisions where you can go one way or the other but then you just kind of pick and i think when i was in between like a junior engineer and a senior engineer like i had difficulty with some of these questions because i just didn't know what would be a dead end and what would be fruitful and in the end i just had to get out of the analysis paralysis and just go down one path and be okay with it, like being a dead end. But I think over time, I ended up developing better taste for what might work and what wouldn't. And that's not to say that it's always on point because recently I had to go down a couple dead ends for like a stack I was unfamiliar with. But um, like uh, I... I got a better sense over time and I was hoping that with a thinking partner, you would be able to explore those dead ends quicker without necessarily writing code. Or maybe with LLMs, you could just have it write the code and then you can see what it looks like. Um, but I think it's kind of a exploratory sense or like even not just write, not just even writing code, but like exploring the properties of a system or like how mm. to think about something. Because I think, models or frameworks are good once if they are able to capture some essence of the the thing that you're talking about but i find that it's a lot of work to get that essence but like once mm-hmm. you see it once somebody else develops for you and it aligns with the real world like the model aligns in the real world given like whatever parameters that it stays with right all models are broken at some point when you go outside of its assumptions and parameters but like once you as long as you stay with it like having those 
um, properties to think about, like how to think about the 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 model and how it'll operate, where it'll break. That is pretty important, I think, um, and and helps design a system. So, so I think that's talking yeah. from somebody that has written a lot of stuff from scratch and um, seen the consequences of their own uh, decisions and uh, wish that there was a better way to shortcut that. So I think that's where that, that thinking partner will, will be very useful. Mm, I see. I know that in your work, you've been like consulting a lot of existing like prior art and literature to understand maybe like what kind of data structures and, and these kind of things yeah, uh, yeah. would be suitable for your problem that you're solving. And I don't know if this would be useful to you. I'm projecting here, but I imagine it would be very cool if rather than doing all that legwork yourself, you gave certain uh, invariants or properties of this database that you were trying to design and uh, an LLM perhaps enabled with browsing could go search, do a lit review and then find some abstractions or data structures that would be relevant uh, and perhaps even suggest certain um, models or, or abstractions that would be suitable for the problem. Right. Yeah. Given these properties, I'm looking for things that would like help fit. Like, how do all the pieces fit together? And right now, I can't put that stuff together. Where it's very good is if I like already pick something and it's known to exist, say like persistent data structures. I'm like, I don't know anything about this. Explain it to me. That it's relatively good at. Yeah. You know, like if if there's some topic that I don't know that that exists previously, but like doing unique combinations of things, I've found it difficult to get it to that but i don't know it can do style transfer so i wish it could do style transfer of ideas between ideas mm. of sorts right it's able to like mix and match but i haven't been able to get it to do that as of yet and so like you said maybe it's a matter of like doing the fine tuning so that it's much better at that than i guess writing an iambic pentameter or something like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um Okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I could see also there are some blind spots that that I have as a developer. Like, um, I'm not going to learn TLA+, uh, which we did a whole episode about. <laughs> yeah. uh, like, I think, but that kind of uh, testing methodology or, or, or specification methodology is supposedly very powerful and, and uh, can unlock like a lot of bug finding abilities and correctness abilities. And so I think it'd be cool if the LLM as an assistant was able to exceed my uh, capabilities as an individual and understand the, the intention of the code that I'm writing. And I can just say, Hey, write some code uh, specification code for this protocol that I'm designing and uh, and verify its correctness. And I don't have to learn the syntax of TLA plus and blah, 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 blah. The model uh, is able to convert my maybe prose design into a spec and then run the tool. And I look at the tool and say, okay, this is uh, as I expect and looks good or not. Yeah, actually, that that's the... Um... 
I guess I'll, I'll mention here the, the outline of things that I was thinking about as it relates to what you're talking about. So like you had your three points, which was extensibility, composability, and just-in-time ephemeral. Like uh, my thing was kind of like there's a high-level, low-level angle in which uh, the LLMs will subsume all the low-level stuff. Basically like the well-known things that we do today that are well-defined, such as like writing queries to fetch a data uh, or like transforming a data to the format that you want or um, like describing components to put together uh, on a page or like theming and skinning your UI with CSS. Those, those are like well-known interfaces and programming languages that like our text base. So LLMs should be able to read them readily. And so I, I think that's the easy part to predict uh, uh, in my mind. Um, and so that's, as it relates to your thing, that's kind of like that high low level dichotomy. It basically pushes all programmers up a, a level of like a level of working, not necessarily level of, of abstraction, but like it subsumes all the low level work that we have to do looking mm. up documentation and stuff. Um, yeah. And then to, to kind of uh, outline some of the other things I was thinking uh, another way to think about it was through an angle of like what part of the stack will it replace? And so how can we change the stack to, fit LLMs into the way that we work. And so some of these are like, does it replace a compiler? Does it replace a database, a backend? Will you pair it with calculators? Uh, yeah. Do you even need an interface anymore? Um, right. Questions like that. And then the last one, the actual last one, is from the idea that, forget about like the, nitty gritties of programming itself like what do we program in the service of and then mm. start from there like the uh, like what's the job to be done and how do we go from there um to kind of rebuild that entire thing and maybe the tools that we have won't look like anything that we actually have today to like get those things sort of things done and so yeah. so that would be my outline so then i guess it was a good opportunity because like when you mentioned like getting the computer to do this sort of stuff that so we don't have to is in line with my first point about the high and low level. Because it, I'm yeah. often reminded of Jordy LaForge on Star Trek when he's like working out a problem. Like Picard's like, we have a virus on board, get on it. And so Jordy LaForge is punching on the dashboard, but like he talks to the computers like, you know, lists me like the all the components of a synthesis for a vaccine and then the computer says there are 345 of them and then he's yeah. like cross-reference that with the number of like uh things that are um amenable to the human physiology and then it nails it down and then he's like well there are three that are left and he's like synthesize all three of them and then we'll, we'll test yeah. them out right and so that's <laughs> That's what I imagine working with LLMs to be more like, um, yeah. because like he's not like doing the cross reference. He's not like writing SQL queries, right? Yeah. And he's not like doing the protein folding and stuff like that, or whatever it is that would synthesize, synthesize the the chemicals. And I imagine it's the same thing here. And that seems like I, I think. 
a caveat to that is if you're doing kind of a first or second pass at things when you're not exactly sure what the problem is and like things are just kind of good enough, I think the LLMs would be great there. But if you have exacting tastes or if you know a little too much, it won't be good enough and you want, you'd want to be able to fine tune the first draft that it gives you, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or at least even better, one step better, it remembers the kind of thing work that you're doing or the style of email that you're trying to write um, so that you don't always have to like iteratively correct it after it gives you the first draft. So for example, mm-hmm. if we were like creating an interface, then you know, you wouldn't say necessarily just say, give me an interface. Maybe you would, and it would give you like, I don't know, like in that open AI demo where you're like, I want a joke generator. Mm-hmm. kind of like this and it you draw the thing and it gives you that like even with working javascript which i was really impressed by yeah. but like maybe if you want something a little bit more exacting then you would be able to drop down into different aspect and components of it say write me this query to fetch this particular set of data from the database it would generate the sql query for you to like slot it in um and then okay, now I have the data. I want to transform this data to a format that is conducive to the application state that I would want to store inside of the client-side browser thing. Like, I'm just going off of web apps. And sure. then, and then like, you may not be able to lay out the entire page, maybe a first pass, but then, like, I want a specialized component. So I'm going to describe the component. You're going to put it together for me and then, uh, you know, maybe uh, there's some way to tweak it either by directly adjusting the code that you give or you, in addition to generating the component, you give me sliders of things that I would be able to do. And that's entirely possible because that's con- like that's analogous to the LLM writing a function in which there are parameters that I can put stuff in, right? So it's totally possible to do stuff like that, I think. And yeah. so, so I think... I think that sort of thing seems like well within the reach. That's not the thing that I have trouble imagining. I think that sort of stuff will like come to pass. I think there's some of the other stuff that I'm having more difficulty with that. I think you and I would be more excited about. So this yeah. stuff is like table stakes, I think. Um, so <laughs> I've been talking for a long time, but I, yeah. I think you're following what I'm saying, right? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, this one, this one seems just like this could happen tomorrow can happen next week like at the pace of of innovation that's happening now like whatever you're describing like it seems like we'll have it by like end of month basically (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I think the one good point that i did see that um like a lot of programmers the tweet was that a lot of programmers assume that like non-programmers and end users would want to have a mental model of how their computer is doing this stuff and to be able to do what they do and really maybe like end users don't they're just like i don't want to have a mental model just just get the thing done so we'll see if it, it turns out to be the case or not because maybe even then even with llms pms will still hire people to write these things for them right yeah maybe yeah so yeah 
Oh, so do we want to go back to like what you were talking about with like the composability of LMs? We can finish up your your particular list before we finish up mine. So, like, were yeah. you to remind our listeners, like, what is the composability aspect of LMs that you were excited about? Yeah, I think the composability aspect of it is that um, Jeffrey Litt uh, uh, is a is a software researcher who has a, a tweet. Um, which I found quite provocative, which is why can't I take a color picker or any widget from one piece of software and use it in the other? Like they're both kind of on my computer, right? Or like they're in my browser or something, but I can't really take bits and pieces, uh, uh, some data from my to-do to-do list app and, and mash it up with my calendar and build like a time tracking or time blocking type software that way. Right. Even though like they're all there, the bits are there. Um, the UI components are there, but you can't just take them and mash them up because effectively the problem with software as we have it now is that there are these rigid boundaries. Things don't really talk to each other because they, uh, might represent data differently. Like my to-do list app has some representation of how it uh, models tasks. And then my calendar app has a different way of modeling uh, events as blocks of time. Yeah. And in order to build a time blocking app or time tracking app, I now need this conversion layer in between that takes the data from my to-do thing and turns it into the shape that my calendar thing expects and uh, and then send the data from one to another, right? And yeah. so... The, yeah, this is the type of work that uh, web application programmers that they the joke that they do all the time now. They don't do actual programming. Even though the interview questions are about data structures and algorithms in reality they don't do any of that most this is what they mostly right. do data transformations yeah. right right all right and we talked a lot about it in our, our apl episode about how basically people are just converting you know shapes uh from one shape to another which apl does a good job of and and so um but i think that if you look at llms they're really good at understanding the semantics of of data, not just the syntax of the data, but also just like, oh, this field in this output of this tool is equivalent to this other field in the input of this other tool, and then can do that conversion for you. And so that's going back to the the uh, concept level. I think this would enable composability because previously things were siloed. And you can use these LLMs as thin shims between existing pieces of software to get them to talk to each other seamlessly. And that enables you to do these like mashups. Like I, I think in the in the 2000s, there was a lot of hype around APIs and, and uh, Web 2.0 in which people were like, yeah, you can mash up tools. You can like take all the yeah. Uh, pictures from Twitter and like uh, uh, plot them on a map or something, right? And like this is what Yahoo Pipes and all that was all about. And and then it went yeah, nowhere yeah. because Favorite middle school, <laughs> yeah, yeah, middle yeah, school yeah, yeah. Love. your first love, I guess, of the internet. Yeah, we should do a um, 
what is it called? Like one of those super cut uh, uh, videos. All the times Shri mentions Yahoo pipes in. The oh console. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Like I think that that's that's what I'm getting at with the composability. Uh, yeah, I got the sense from watching the old videos of the Alto systems and small talk that that was what they intended. Like you can, mm-hmm. it's an entire system an entire environment, not just a programming environment, but the, the entire environment is malleable for you to do like um, change so that it fit your work and f- workflow, right? Like people are mm-hmm. amazed when they see that there's like some animation in an application in a small talk system that they can then take to put somewhere else and to Jeffrey Litt's question, like, why can't you do this? I guess one I guess the people that saw that and imitated only cloned all the shallow ideas and not the deep ideas. And so that's probably part of the reason. Like, I don't know, Steve Jobs always gets lauded as some visionary, but I'm always just like, he missed so much stuff. And maybe it's for the better because otherwise you can't sell software. So I don't know. Like there might be a reason why HyperCard was continuously diminished in Apple's line of products is because like end user programming doesn't make any him any money. And so sometimes yeah. I wonder like <laughs> some of the things that we see and witness in the software industry is not really a software and tooling problem, but it's like a problem of economic incentives. Yeah. Um, and so one of the questions that I always had was like, why are like, like there's just like, I don't know, like people just don't value main, maintaining code and writing clean code. And like, I understand the forces that are there and they're not always technical. They're like people make very prudent and rational trade-offs. But as a result, like this, the, the morass, is, is that the right word? Like the, just the pile of rocks that we talked about sure. in our episode in independent types which you should check out um is is just what we end up with and we're always like how do we get here (laughs) so i i think part of it is the economic incentives one and i guess i don't know when when did that happen like i guess the apple computers are sold as an application right like it's sold as an appliance that's what i'm saying yeah yeah like the macintosh was sold as an appliance and so and then Windows as well. And so I guess the thought was that most people don't want to be programmers. They don't want to have the mental model of like how your thing is working. And maybe this is still true today with the LLMs. As much as power as it gives you, just as like like before the GUI, people did not want to ride on the command line. So as much power as that give gave people, like we can do lots of stuff now. We're still hiring programmers, so maybe the same will be true with LLM. So hmm. that's kind of one one data point. But I guess, like as to why that's the case, my guess is is just kind of you can blame Steve Jobs and 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 uh, Bill Gates. Like that's that's not what made them money, so they didn't focus on it, right? But yeah. like the end but there is something to end user programming because like people really do use spreadsheets for all sorts of things and really i think before all the llms came i thought it was a really 
missed opportunity that maybe spreadsheets was not the entire programming environment. Mm -hmm. Like an OS should be built on spreadsheets. So like all the applications would be spreadsheets. (laughs) And maybe there would be a way that you can style all the different boxes so that it would nominally look like an interface. It's still kind of ugly, but like for people that want to get work done, like they don't, like one time I built like a uh, interface for people that was doing logistics um, at a hardware company I was working at. And, you know, I made sure to lay it out with like um, spaces in the design, like the the design of the thing list. And the feedback was the rows are too too tall. I can't see all this stuff at once. Like I just uh-huh. want them as thin as possible. Don't give me all this stuff. And yeah. so I was just like, oh, okay, right. And so I think that's the same thing as um, recently when I watched my uh, friend who prepares corporate taxes and I watched her use the company's ERP systems to do her job. And I was appalled at what she had to do because I think the people that made the ERP system didn't have an understanding, like a deep understanding of her workflow. And so as a result, they required her to click into things that didn't make sense to do approval of some corporate process that they had. And as a result, what she had to do was kind of replicate the data inside the ERP web app in a spreadsheet so she can work on it with her coworker to keep mm. track of stuff, right? It's it's almost like they had to do like it, like syncing by hand of the data in the ERP to the spreadsheet so that they can yeah. have all the data that they need in the same place at the same time to work uh-huh. on it together. I was just like what the what the hell is this? And so maybe yeah maybe with an LLM people can create their own interfaces for these like specialized workflows. Like, you know, what's yeah, that yeah. Anna Karina, like all happy families are happy in the same way. All the bad ones are different, whatever it is, yeah. but like yeah. the same thing, like everybody's interfaces are like good interfaces are different in their own ways. And all the bad ones are, are bad in the same ways or whatever it is. But, but my right. point stands is that like people, people that are people that use things have this deep understanding of what they need mm-hmm. that it's really hard for you as the programmer to grasp unless you decide that that's part of your identity and mm-hmm. you decide to take that on. And so I've been talking yeah. for a long time but like the composability part I think is is where where I think that that would definitely benefit people but I think, mm-hmm. I think like with the legacy that we have of how our computer systems developed, you may have to end up using LLMs as the glue that ties into the different systems together, no matter how inefficient they are. Because like these things are yeah. now multimodal, so like, <laughs> so like you could presu- presumably take like a snapshot of the UI to detect like where the button is so that mm-hmm. it like clicks through all the stuff for you. And so maybe that's an in- inefficiency that we live with. I-, I don't know. Like, what do you think? Yeah. 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 I think that, uh, uh, you bring up a lot of good points. I think one is why did end user programming fail in previous iterations? And I think that 
if I were to to kind of guess at what you're saying, one way to put it is that people don't people are experts in their problem domain. They understand things like ERP systems, taxes, whatever, right? Yeah. And like we shouldn't underestimate them in that regard. What we don't want people to do and what scares people off is having to drop into a different level of abstraction, which is that of computers, which is like, how do I translate what's in my head into like how this stupid computer can understand Right, like I guess what I described before as the mental model of how the computer would work in order to accomplish my task because it's a level and direction that we as programmers and engineers are used to. But Mm -hmm. like, I don't think that's native to a lot of other people's workflows it's like a really different way of thinking yeah 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 totally and and you know you think about like as as programmers we're like oh yeah just like represent this as like a a list of like objects each with these keys and blah 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 like people don't know all this stuff right they're just like i have this like you know line item in the taxes like how do we represent it i don't know right and so this is the job that programmers have traditionally done um and llms can be that glue that that are that like abstract or do that abstraction conversion um and i think that yeah it is interesting uh that people do people do build software in spreadsheets right i think somehow like spreadsheets are something that people understand probably because they're reactive because it, it, they're i don't know like uh extensible programmable in in small ways like with formulas and things which they can understand actually i think one of the major things uh, uh, one major win for spreadsheet is that it's you see the data Hmm. first and not the code the code is like this little line in the bar at top whereas with programmers it's inverted we see the code but we imagine the data in our heads yeah right right, whereas for spreadsheets it's inverted they see the data and then the code you only see when you like click into every cell and stuff so i think that might make it more concrete because like in the real world you see the objects and it's the process that's hidden yeah whereas like in programming it's inverted it's as if you're like a blind person that can see like over time or like how process is happening but you don't see the actual object. You have to imagine it in your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's, that's a really good point. And the thing is also that by the spatial nature of spreadsheets, you can infer the semantics of the data because you can like yeah. uh, cluster right. things. People don't use spreadsheets in a strictly like a tabular fashion. Sometimes they'll have like one... Yeah area of the spreadsheet with a header right. and that's grouped together somehow yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and highlighted with different colors and things. All of those things mean something to the human, which like computer doesn't necessarily understand. Uh, but you can use spreadsheets that way uh, to encode some kind of human understandable semantics. And um, so I think that's powerful. And I think that the, the possibility of LLMs, especially you got to the multimodal part, which is that Maybe uh, LLMs can also understand the semantics of basically the pseudo UI that somebody's making in a spreadsheet and understand, oh, yeah, all these things are under this one colored little uh, box. That means that they belong together and they represent something, right? 
and these other things over here represent something else. And then, uh, and then, like you said, maybe you can even draw a button, something that just looks like a button, and it says submit or uh, delete all rows or something, right? And uh, mm-hmm. and by virtue of how it looks, and then also its label, you could say, "Hey, LLM, make this thing go," and and you don't worry about how necessarily what code uh, it runs, but it infers your intent. If you think about a spreadsheet as a UI builder, you could probably just have the LLM understand the shape of your data and understand uh, the button or widget that you want in a certain place and write the logic that does the thing that you want it to do. Yeah, I I think that brings up a good point and i don't know if we should segue into it because there's so many things to cover we're just like wandering all over the place but like this <laughs> one of the things that i want to talk about later is that like does do we need like a whole new environment like programming environment to take advantage of llms because like when i think about like where you would take be able to take advantage of llms and the things it has to offer like is our current programming environment the best one for that? And I'd be hard pressed to just say yes, because they're like, you could pretend like, well, IDEs have like any programming language takes comments. So you could just take comments as the prompt and then it would be able to reply in code. But I can imagine other environments say like notebooks where you would be able to do something similar, but then the replies that it gives you doesn't necessarily have to be code. Like it could be graphs um, or, or like some type of visualization of the data that you have. But then even more than that, because these things are multimodal and we haven't really taken advantage of that yet, it could reply with audio or video and it you, you could have programming that works very well and natively with video and audio, not just mm. for, <clears throat> excuse me, typical audio video tasks like video editing for something, but like maybe for games, I guess. Maybe like it, it, nowadays, if you're building a MOOC like Coursera or something like Khan Academy, then you would have to like put together all the different pieces of not just how the website interacted with users as they solve problems and click buttons, but also the video that you have. But maybe that would be an integral part of the programming environment where you're able to take a video and slice the video up. And then based on the uh, way that the the students solve the problem, then you would be able to skip to different parts of the video or even better because these are LLMs, they should be able to generate new videos Hmm. to teach you stuff. Right. So this is probably along the lines of uh, the diamond ages, like a young girl's Enchiridion. Basically it's like this magic book that taught your kid, the things that they need to know at an age appropriate thing. And we mentioned this before that, at the time it was written, it was conceived that the characters that are teaching you stuff in this magical electronic book were actors that would be doing gig work, kind of like how Ubers um, <laughs> do gig driving, but like with LLMs, like it could perceivably just conceivably just generate the new video for you, but like you 
in the programming environment would dictate the parameters in which like the kind of video to generate. And so that mm-hmm. would be the programming environment. And so that's yeah. kind of the more out there stuff that I wanted to leave to the end, but since we're talking about it now, so maybe something like spreadsheets or like a spreadsheet plus would make a lot of sense for mm-hmm. like a, a programming environment um, in not in just terms of composability, but in terms of the things that we optimize for the power of an LLM to help us with whatever tasks that we're doing. I think I see what you're saying. One of the limitations of using LLMs as these thin shims to shuttle one type of um, data structure around into a different type of data structure is that you can make the argument that it's a very expensive tool for that job, right? Like you're you're calling this machine learning model and you yeah. might as well like write code uh, or something uh, that's better suited for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the advantages is that, that when we typically think about the data structures or the data formats that we can deal with in our current uh, programming languages and environments, they're very much text-based or structured uh, data-based. Um, yeah, uh, and of one inputs. of the reasons that we do that is because we think of text as the universal um, universal interface because like computers can work with it readily, but maybe that's not true anymore because these things are multimodal, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so then you can generate images. You can read those images and infer some type of... Uh, information from them uh and 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 yeah so as a concrete example you draw an interface and then that's the input instead of like laying out the thing you're like i want it to look kind of like this right and Mm -hmm. so that 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 would be the input to the layout of, of some interface yeah 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 that makes sense yeah so i think to to rewind uh i think that llm's will enable uh, a way to interoperate um, between data from different sources, similar to how your friend was taking the the data from an ERP, which is a very rigid piece of software, and dropping it into uh, a spreadsheet so that they can manipulate it Mm -hmm. better. I think that LLMs make all types of data similarly moldable in that way and composable in ways that we won't expect. Um, so I'm pretty excited for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that has great potential there, at, at least as a way to, if anything, just as a stepping stone to how we can better work. Because like it's it's like a bridge, right? Like we'll realize that, oh, people actually want more flexibility in the interfaces that they have to computers and LLMs are a way to kind of bridge that gap until we actually get there. Um, And so going back to my list, I think that the last thing I wanted to talk about was creating software or user interfaces just in time. Uh, and and making them ephemeral, so that's that's a little bit weird because that's not something that exists right now. Like right now, software is this fairly precious thing that is this artifact that is created ahead of time and then given to the user, right? Delivered to the user either 
Yeah, there's no like like the by I mean evidence of that is that there's no post-it note of software, right? Nobody yeah, like right. writes. I mean, like there's some some like maybe like small JavaScript snippets that like developers might write to throw away or like bash bash code that people write on the command line uh, is the closest thing I can think of. But like most software like end users would come across, like those are like shrink wrap stuff that lots of people spend a lot of time putting together and uh, maintain so that you can have a seamless experience. Yeah, exactly. And I think that as the cost of generating code and logic drops to zero, and a lot of it can be done in this zero-shot, real-time way, that there will be a mode of of software, like there will be some new segment of software which is just short-lived. I like the post-it note analogy because it's just something that serves its purpose and then you just get rid of it. You don't think too much of it. And I think that um, we'll see something similar with uh, even things like user interfaces. Like right now, if you want a custom interface to solve some problem at hand, it's very, very cumbersome. You you would probably never, um, you'd never create a custom UI to explore some problem that you're just sort of curious about, right? And it's potentially, it's possible with LLMs the way that they can just quickly generate uh, new uh, UIs that you can just say, hey, I'm trying to solve this problem, uh, maybe in the service of something that's not even about software, writing software. Like you're just like you're a, a scientist or something who is trying to explore the space of ideas and you want to quickly chart it out and have some sliders or something that can help you uh, visualize some phenomenon. Uh, y- right now, you would have to write some custom code, maybe in MATLAB or something, to generate that UI. And you might avoid doing it because that's a lot of hard work. But it's possible that with LLMs, you can just ask it to generate that type of exploratory code. And then it exists for as long as it serves your purpose. And then you throw it away. You don't commit it. You don't do anything because it's so cheap that can just come into existence and die seamlessly. Yeah, I definitely can see that. Like for, I mean, going back to that example about ERP systems, like ERPs are supposed to be like the beating heart of a company and you have lots of people in a lot of different positions or industries, positions, uh, roles that are trying to access the same data but they want to see it in different ways because their job to be done is markedly different. But it's hard as the programmer developer, application developer to kind of really sympathize and um, and do that f- across roles and also across companies because you're selling them all across different companies, right? And so sometimes maybe the best thing is to just have an export CVSV button and then have people sort it out in a spreadsheet. But sometimes you can't do that because the data set is too large, right? And so what do you do? And so maybe, maybe you have a way for the LLM to generate an interface for people to, to say, well, like, this is the job that I'm trying to get done. 
generate the interface for me. So this is like a little bit higher up than what I was talking about before with like the high level, low level code sort of thing. Like before I might've said, okay, you ask the LLM to generate a query for you in which then you like for each data piece of data that you get back, you generate a, you ask it to generate a interface that helps you view that data. But here I'm just saying, this is my job to be done. Figure mm-hmm. out some sort of interface that I can get this job done, right? So yeah. like you might be in an e-commerce system. So like you're worried about um, fulfilling orders, right? And so you would say, give me a list of all the orders that I have to fulfill today and generate an interface for me to fulfill those orders. And then it would do that. It would still be a list of orders, but the interface would be different so that you can like generate a label and then be able to pick the shipping boxes and stuff like that. Yeah, it's uh, almost like a headless SaaS or something, right? Like you have all the data uh, in whatever schema, you have all the domain objects, and then the UI is, it can be anything, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think that it's, It seems like people are trying to approximate things like this because if you look at any system of record, which are things like ERP systems for like business processes, CRMs for sales or marketing, or even um, EHRs, electronic health records uh, for healthcare. All of them are system of records, meaning that a fundamental part of the the service they provide is they're the canonical data source for these domain level objects, yeah, right? And they persist yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Now, all of them have a UI, which is custom built for that uh, whatever use case, right? Whether that's for accounting or for a doctor or whatever, they all need to see things in, in the way that suits them. But a lot of them, what they expose are these custom dashboard type builders, which typically you would have yeah. um, consultants or maybe if, you have, if you're a big company, you have an in-house team and all the different business units can be like, I want to see this data in this way because we need we have this particular job to be done, right? And then you have your yeah. uh, Salesforce consultant or Salesforce in-house expert um, does whatever, knows all the tricks to get that UI to look kind of the way that it needs to. Yeah, to me, it's an indication that it's overly complicated when you, it springs up an ecosystem of like specific Salesforce developers. Because like it's yeah. supposed to be so that people can build their own, but they're just like, no, I don't want anything to do with this. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to learn whatever that Salesforce, um, you know, markup language or something in order to like have that widget that they need, right? And so you hire people to do this. But it shows that the demand is there because these systems of records the the manufacturers or, or the companies that make these systems of records know that every business is different. Every um, team within businesses need a slightly different uh, view on things and they can't anticipate all those in advance. And so basically what they've just accepted is that they're going to create this whole ecosystem uh, to support this. But I think tying it back to what we're talking about um maybe that you can get rid of that ecosystem by just allowing 
the end user directly to specify how they want to see things and then it just yeah. it just happens mm-hmm. yeah i mean jeffrey lit once again like that we mentioned before he has a thread about this that for the task that he has which specifically was video editing that if he has simple ones he'll probably benefit from doing uh llms to describe the thing but then at a certain point beyond a certain level of complexity like it would be a better investment of his time to learn a real video editor and that's probably Mm -hmm. true here as well and so maybe like even with these erp systems you would want a specialized ui for that job to be done but Maybe at the very least, what would be even more powerful is that the LLM can note the type of UIs being generated and be able to spot patterns across users in a company over time and then announce to everybody, hey, I noticed that you guys are all trying to do this one thing. Like I made up an actual interface or I need to commission like actual programmers to <laughs> to like make this thing because either I'm doing it too slow to generate, like I have to wait like five, six, seven seconds to actually generate the, the UI and maybe that isn't conducive to how people want to work, right? Like mm-hmm. imagine if you have to like wait five or six seconds, you might as well have the latency go to Mars or something, um, like your central servers in Mars. And so maybe that'll actually be a thing and it will keep people employed because like it's the last line of defense or like when you actually need something optimized for the thing. But once you understand the job to be done and the actual workflow, because I think that's one of the really tough things about programming is that it's not just the technical thing. It's like you actually have to empathize and understand like what the hell people are trying to do. And that's Mm -hmm. so hard. And that's why we have so much crappy software out there because really like we can't be, we can't have, we can't identify with everybody. Like the easiest thing to identify is with yourself. But like even as much as we try with like teachers or like people that are doing logistics, like there's only so much that we can empathize with, like unless we are those people. And most people are not both programmers and something else. It's really hard to like expend the amount of time and expertise to do both, right? Which is why you stand at a huge advantage if you can do both. But like here, it gives you the opportunity to be both at least to a first order approximation and then to something else that is more complex than then maybe that's when you call in the cavalry. So programmers mm. will be the cavalry instead. Maybe that's an optimistic view. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The agile development is supposed to be this workflow or this process in which you, uh, you know, iterate towards the correct solution by shipping quickly and delivering it to the user and then uh, gathering their feedback and then looping back. But one trip around that loop is still on the order of weeks, right? And so that's a, yeah, a limiting yeah. factor. And now what we're saying is that the you know five to seven seconds is a still a long time when you're dealing with an interface. But we're not just talking about uh, the the we're not talking about some input latency to pre existing interface. We're talking about actually like exploring the space of like UI ideas or software ideas, um, and and that's on the order of seconds. And then maybe that allows you to hone in very quickly, or allows the end user themselves to hone in very quickly on their requirements and what they need. And then at some point, 
you formalize that and, and that requires like actual software developers or something to like lock in those um, those things. Yeah, yeah. And so like I think the LLM part, it, maybe the opportunity here is that it separates the exploration part with the reliability part because I think the the typical push and pull or like the the unresolvable dichotomy in programming is that you want on one hand you want to be able to explore a problem space quickly and so that's why you, you get the dynamic languages and like the hacker mentality and stuff like that but then like going down those paths almost never is conducive to the reliability and like the solid sort of stuff so like you get like static typing and stuff like that right and, and so maybe you can actually divorce the two so that you can operate them independently of each other. So you can use LLMs to explore the space in a first-order approximation. And then either you gather the usage data across different instances or, you know, across different companies, across, like, different roles that you can produce. You can then generate a set of requirements more exact requirements for uh, programmers to implement. So maybe it's not programmers that go out of get out of a job. It's PMs. Hmm. Ha ha ha. <laughs> yeah, that's the <laughs> that's the optimistic part. As we're both software engineers and not PMs, so we'll shift the <laughs> yeah, burden exactly. to some other <laughs> class of people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think one of the things that we talked about here is like. Uh, replacing parts of the stack can llms replace part of the stack for us and we inadvertently here covered like do you even need an interface right but then like do you even need a database or even a back end because there is a github repo that purports that you can replace an entire back end with gpt and we'll mm -hmm. link to it in the show notes and i mean it's kind of impressive what they have basically they just described what a backend could be. And then you have your client just hit GPT directly <laughs> through a link and then it mimics what a backend could do and just replace like response with that. And that's kind of crazy, I guess. And so I think if you pair LLMs with databases, that could be pretty powerful, actually. Like, typically, we think uh, right now we pair LLMs with calculators because I guess typically they're not so good with math. Um, and OpenAI just yesterday released an app store with plugins. And so you could pair it with Wolfram Alpha and stuff like that. And that grounds the hallucination. But that's not to say that you can't ground it with a database in which you are able to offload some of the things that databases are great at and LLMs are not. And mm -hmm. then it could just act as the routing layer between requests and the data that, that it's getting. I don't know how fast it's going to be, but basically yeah. uh, maybe what it's really good at is this first order approximation. And then it would be able to replace responding to queries directly with the LLMs with writing code that is like a typical Rails controller code. Or if you want something more artisanal, then it would just generate requirements for a programmer to then write. So maybe that, that would be something that makes sense. Yeah, so 
you're basically saying that a lot of what people are thinking about when they're talking about LLMs and software is LLMs write some type of code that we would traditionally write. And, and, um, and, and this other view, this alternative view of LLMs as a backend and whatnot yeah. is saying, just screw the code, code. Yeah. Just, just, just do, just do it all in LLMs, right? Like the LLM is a simulator. It is a, right. uh, a, I don't know if it's Turing complete or whatever, but it's, it's, it's like certainly com- uh, capable of a certain class of computations within its own architecture. It, you don't need to drop into traditional programming languages just like do it all in llms yeah i i actually wonder if you can can an llm run a runtime because right now it's doing autocomplete on tokens and stuff but like could you actually have it learn like a stack-based vm like some sort of runtime so that it would actually be able to execute it in its systems of weights but maybe like a more practical thing is that LLOs can design their own tools that they can then call out to. So then they would actually be writing the code and then call out to it as a as a way. And so I think that's already what people are doing. So I guess that's not too crazy. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's, that also goes into um, maybe the like future interface example uh, or, or discussion because... I can imagine that right now all of our our editors and environments in which we build software are based on the idea that we have these um, um, you know we have these co- we have code that's stored in files that it's full functions and, and and all of this stuff and it's possible that this future class of software a lot of it is just these prompts which are just like behave in this way right and then and then you just call that it's like a stub function which you like vaguely describe what it should do and then you can call that as a a endpoint or a function call or whatever and it just does that thing right and um and then in that world maybe you have a different type of uh software development environment in which it looks more like a notebook where you have these like little fragments uh, of of logic or, or or a description of what things should be, maybe like similar to like literate programming or something. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, rather than focused on the code itself, you focus on um, the description, and you you can you you can move those around and edit them and track changes to those or something. Yeah, and I think this leads back to what we were talking about earlier, and whether it requires a new environment. Uh, to take advantage like do you want to move on to that because i think that's kind of where where my questions lead to like does this do we need a new programming language environment like just basic or new programming environment to take advantage of lms and more and more i'm thinking that's kind of where the meat is and it could require it could make adoption hard because people (laughs) programmers especially don't like new tools unless they it's like a 10x obvious sort of thing but like yeah i I think like when, when i think about like what llms can do the more i think about like oh how do we insert this into it and then the different places that i can think of inserting it in the current suite of tools that we have 
is basically anywhere we have inert text. And that's actually not that many places, hmm. which is mainly comments or like provided text boxes that we have that we bake into some sort of interface. But I think it's it's a little hard to imagine, but like I, I wonder if there's something else in which, for example, like let's say you model programming as a conversation. And so if you model it as a linear conversation, then it would be kind of be like a notebook in which, or a REPL, right? In which you mm -hmm. say something and the computer says something back. You say something and computer says something back. But then maybe you could have a threaded conversation where you ex do exploratory work of different branching things that could happen. And so that's not like it's impossible today. It's not, but I've never seen like a branching REPL. But imagine that, because sometimes when I do conversational things with ChatGPT, like I am exploring something and then I have to like refer to something else, like some other line of questioning way back when, and maybe I moved out of its token window. But maybe like you could have threaded conversations to say, I want you to process the data in this way. And then now go back up like a couple prompts earlier and then take this other tack and let's see what happens there yeah. and without like dealing with the low level because at the high level i'm just doing exploratory work so maybe maybe like this is a different programming environment that takes advantage of of that i find myself wanting that because it would chat gpt because i'm having conversations with it i, I wish it was kind of threaded right yeah yeah it, i i see what you mean you can kind of um go down one path and then backtrack and then go down another path. And then the artifact that you have is that entire threaded conversation. Well, the, maybe the final output is just whatever the, the result or you serialize mm -hmm. the code or, or whatever, but um, you, the environment exposes that entire kind of history of, of that conversation. Yeah, so you can go yeah, yeah. back to it and refer to it. Right. Yeah. So I guess another alternative I can think of with the programming environment is not so much like a node and wire, but maybe like a notebook, but you take advantage of the spatial aspect, both vertically and horizontally, so that you can generate results to the right or down, and you can arrange it in a way where you can have you know, one dimension representing parallel converse, uh, computation or just alternatives to whatever code path that you're doing. And it doesn't have to be a node and, and lines that are drawn everywhere that confuses it, but like it's organized in a semi-orderly way. Uh, think of it like a Pinterest board rather than a spreadsheet so that like mm. you have some like loose, like, columns versus rows of things that are related to each other spatially as computation is happening and so yeah then that's one way to view it and maybe then the llm can switch that from like a process mode to a interface mode where like the results of this computation is represented in this like way and so it's a unified form unified way to think about both process and the data as it's being transformed. So mm. I don't know, like I'm just trying to think of a variety of ways in which this is the environment in which both you and an LLM can work together. Because yeah. I think 
I think software, maybe because it's so multidimensional or maybe because like computers can best process text that we're so used to using text. But I think there should be a way to mix both visual elements and textual elements. And now that we mm-hmm. have LLMs, we should be able to work with both just as easily. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. I think maybe a, a more modern analogy would probably be something like a Figma Yeah, I was thinking about that that too, right. A Figma canvas that you can actually program. So like, what if like Jupyter Notebooks and Figma had a baby? Like what what does that actually look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting. Yeah, because you're right that all of the um, ways that we think about programming right now are very linear, right? Um, Whether they be notebooks or REPLs or or whatever. Linear in the way that they're presented, but then in our heads, it's actually multidimensional. So I think that that may be one reason why it's hard to represent spatially on like a two-dimensional screen. But Mm -hmm. also that, that like, I don't know if traditionally it's that way because like text is much easier to process for uh, computers than say like images and video. But that said, I'm not saying that I'm not like the visual programming advocates where like, let's throw away all text. I think text can really um, summarize things much more succinctly in a way that images and videos can't. Like you can say things like bring you, I could have brought beer last Friday if I wanted to. Like, I'm not sure how you express that sort of idea in images, right? Sure. Or even video. And so there are things like that that I think code would be good for, but I think there flip side, there are things, especially like data in which like, I don't think programming environments leverage the visual cortex nearly as well. The best we do is like syntax highlighting, right? Yeah. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. And maybe you don't have to, I wonder if you can like make it so that it can translate your actions spatially into some sort of text representation and you throw it in, well, maybe like the that's the multimodal aspect, right? So that mm-hmm. you can do stuff and it can observe you doing stuff and try to infer what you're trying to do rather yeah. than you trying to like explain explicitly. Programming yeah, by yeah. example, that was a whole thing in the <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, programming episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we talked about this in the visual programming, programming episode, which you mm-hmm. should check out. We'll... Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, put a little card there. Yeah, and then if it gets something wrong, you can say that's not it, or you undo what it does, and so hopefully it won't be super annoying that you have to undo everything that it's doing. But yeah, yeah, I mean, like I can, I don't know, I can imagine that sort of thing. Do you, like, do you think you would program in such an environment? Is that something like you feel super compelling, or is it kind of like a yeah, that would be nice in the abstract, but I don't see how it could help me today. I think that I have wanted something like this for a while. I'll explain like a little bit more concretely. Um, Figma is very good at design, but all of the all of the things that it produces are dead. They're just screens, right? Like, which is weird because like Figma is supposed to be this very modern tool. But yeah. like at the end of the day, you, there's this handoff process where now you have to convert that into React or React Native or whatever in order to actually have an app that looks like that but actually works, right? Um, 
And there are these other tools that are like kind of like these prototyping tools, like ProtoPy and these things, which like allow you to visually build um, uh, like apps or, or interfaces and then like script certain events like, oh, when I click this, like do, you know, have this animation or, or display this table or whatever. Uh, and those are limited to, I don't know, I, I've always wanted something where I'm not actually intending to ship this to end users. I just want to have a canvas where I can visualize things uh, spatially and perhaps like build, um, uh, going back to the ephemeral UI thing, like just build a very quick widget or a very quick screen mm, yeah. uh, like in situ, just like to help me solve that problem. And then where you're wrong is people just make you ship that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's, that's what it is. But yeah, there's the separation between like prototyping and productionization. And these two things are, are very separate and yeah. potentially um, we're talking about uh, this shared canvas in which I don't know, maybe it could be the same. Like you explore data very quickly in this environment and, but then somehow the, the artifact that you get out of this is a um, program which you can ship. Mm -hmm. Ship as a first pass, or like maybe you have to refine it later. Or, yeah. you know, like, well, I was thinking like at, at, to top off the entire thing, maybe like what we do is that we just heap the LLM on top of all the other complexity we already have right. and hope for faster hardware. And so even though it's inefficient today, hardware will get even faster that it's like no problem just to run an LLM on top of whatever complexity we already have. And just uh, it it's going to be like the new uh, Electron, right? Like you ship yeah. like this like LLM app and right. it's like people are going to groan like, ah, oh, it's one of these LLM apps like so slow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until the hardware gets fast enough, right? And so maybe it leads us to, I think it was best depicted in the movie Her by Spike Jones. Have you watched that yet? Because I've asked you if you've watched it twice now. I, I, no, I haven't watched yeah. it yet. So there, uh, Samantha, the AI, is the computer OS. And that's the entire way that you interact with it. And you ask her to do stuff for you. And she takes care of all the details. And so maybe that's the way things are. The entire environment is the LLM. Maybe you don't type prompts. Maybe you can just show her stuff. And so maybe we're still a generation or two away from that. Mm -hmm. So that like all of the things that we mentioned before are basically just bridges to the end game in which it can actually handle things end to end. So you're like, oh, I just got this notice for identity theft. Go take care of it. I have the, you know, you have all my documentation and verification. They're mm -hmm. wrong. I, I know it. Or like, tell me why, like, I'm getting this. That sort of thing. Sort it out. Yeah. Go call the insurance place and sort it out for you. Because, like, we have the Whisper API or whatever from OpenAI. Just call yeah. them. Make an appointment. <laughs> With LLMs, I think it opens up because discoverability I think is less of a problem because it can just kind of supposedly infer what you want for mm. the most part. So, yeah. so that kind of breaks it out of that mold. So that, that makes that sort of Samantha like, or like in the movie her, that sort of interface more 
within the realm of possibility. Yeah. And I could see this, like connecting this back to like, well, what does this have to do with like software? I think like this is a type of new high level scripting, right? It's like so high level that it's just like do this sequence of tasks uh, or, or do this task and, and, and decompose that into the prerequisite steps. Uh, I like that. I, I think that's interesting because um, that that's like having a scripting language w- whose standard library includes like actions that you like making phone calls or open table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Open table. Yeah. All right. Uh, or make, yeah. you know, this kind of things. Like I think that's, that's pretty crazy. Oh, I think going back to the, the composability piece, like one of the reasons why this wouldn't be possible in a traditional scripting language is that, how would you possibly convert like the in this in this LLM type of sequenced set of commands? You could be like, call the restaurant and see if if this dish is gluten free, and if it's not, then make a reservation somewhere else. Like and and presumably because of the like the multimodality, the LLM could call the restaurant, take the transcript of like uh, that conversation about whether the dish was gluten free. And then convert that basically into a boolean yes or no, and then decide whether to branch or not, which is like not possible in any structured uh, programming language that we have today. Yeah, not at that high of a level. You have to do a lot of work to get that to work, and yeah. even then, it'd be so brittle, and it'd be a one-off thing that's not very flexible at all, and it's not that useful except for that one case. When it <laughs> right. Works, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so I think that's, that's, I'm trying to make the case for like why, why this is like programming. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, but even better than programming and why we haven't seen this type of use case before. It's because it would be insane to write a program that did this because it would only work once in a very limited, fragile set of scenarios. Yeah. And so it seems like, uh, like... OpenAI has some version of this with their like plugin announcement, which I thought was, I should have thought, I should have saw it coming, but I don't feel too bad because it seems like a lot of other people also didn't feel it coming. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, it's classic in the way that from a business perspective, like they inverted the value chain. So instead of being a commodity API, then they, because they own the customer experience currently, because people are interacting with ChatGPT, they then can situate themselves as the valuable part of the value chain and everybody else has to come to them because they own the customer experience right now, right? Right. And so that commodifies everybody else because they can adapt to other people's APIs quicker than other people can adapt to theirs, right? So they right. they can make other people plugins faster than other people can implement ChatGPT into their products, huh. right? You, you <laughs> yeah, see what yeah. I'm saying? So, yes, so yes, I, yes, I yes. thought that was because they they know that their run rate or their runway is relatively short given the type of competition that they have, mm-hmm. and also their willingness to just cast off their previous nonprofit ethos makes them in my eyes, a fearsome competitor because there's just like, forget 
any value, like our stated values before, we'll just do whatever, right? Right, right. <laughs> we'll put out an API, we'll let you do the product research, and we'll, like Microsoft, like we'll just implement the, the most popular and like core to the native experience stuff where it makes the most money and everybody else can have scraps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's true. The, so the chat GPT plugin announcement um, uh, it was is concerning. yesterday for no doubt, right? <laughs> for Yeah, yeah, it less. was just yesterday. It seems, yeah, I've just already internalized it. It's like, yeah, obviously that now exists. But um, yeah, but, but you know, I think like the thing is that the level of sophistication that that chat GPT API needs in order to know what tools to use and whatnot is not uh, so proprietary. I think that um, something like Alpaca or um, Llama or any of these new models, local LLMs, are capable of the same things, provided that they are fine-tuned on some data set that has um, that shows them how to use tools. And so uh, in that world where we have alpaca fine-tuned on tool usage you could have uh, these things run locally and i know that apple has recently announced optimized uh, inference of transformers on their yeah. uh, chipsets and so yeah. you could Im- also imagine that. kind of surprised but not surprised once i read it, i'm like oh i'm surprised but yeah it totally makes sense it makes sense yeah <laughs> yeah um so in that world you could imagine that uh, some local LLM running on, on optimized chips uh, can can create the um, the new software stack for this type of scripting, basically, uh, without having to rely on OpenAI. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I think the the local running part is is a good an important part of the story that wrestles control away from open AI. And I suspect that companies like Apple would be really strong in the camp of this. And it would be especially important for industries that traditionally have data privacy concerns and are traditionally more resistant to traditional, uh, information technology processing such as like lowering lawyering and healthcare like mm-hmm. those are two big places in which there's just a whole slew of techs that we hire a whole bunch of administrators on to just process codes and stuff uh what, what kind of, uh popping it back off the stack i, I think the the thing that you and i kind of talk about pre and post game it's just like how like where should you actually like position yourself like where does this actually make sense yeah because open ai like why build anything if open ai is just going to release something like a couple days later right because there's with the release of the plugin app store like that killed a whole bunch of startups i think That's oh what yeah it sounded like to me yeah, the the joke, uh, the the memes going on on Twitter is that like uh, OpenAI, like Thanos snapped uh, like a whole YC batch out of existence. Uh, <laughs> to get that reference, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. It's a good question. I, I, I think, you know, where do you position yourself in this in this world? I think there's a huge opportunity in just like making use of local LLMs and 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 positioning yourself like to to go where the puck is headed, which is that we're gonna have these local LLMs. We're gonna have fast inference on servers and as well as on mobile devices and just build it like it, it it's hard to do looking forward but like you know how people say that like with the mobile phone and like the existence of gps um you could build uber right because you can just like assume that you can get the location of anybody like anywhere get the the location mm-hmm. of the end user um and so I imagine that there's a class of of businesses or apps that can just assume the existence of uh, LLM inference on device and do something that we wouldn't expect. Right, but then what's to prevent OpenAI from just doing that thing? Like, how would you position yourself? Yeah, I think that's the the moat is the is the on device thing, right? Because the thing is that like. OpenAI is always going to, I won't never say always about OpenAI, but like they're so far going to gatekeep their model behind an API call. And in this world that we're talking about, which is uh, where LLMs are a fundamental building block of of computing, uh, why would you spend the time making an API call when you can do inference on device? Right, like when we're talking about um, anything, like you're doing, it, you're using LLM as a as a uh, thinking partner, or you're using an LLM to manage your own data or do some local data transformation. Uh, you don't always want to be online for that, and you and incur the latency or the cost of making open OpenAI call. Um, if you can do the same thing with a fine tuned model on device, does that make sense? Like that on yeah. device piece, like disintermediates like OpenAI's power. Yeah, and also you can fine tune it to your particular use case. Th- then that says yeah. to me that like everybody will probably be, well, I don't know. Maybe as a first pass, everybody will use like the existing one, and it's only if you need some sort of specific use case that doesn't need Chat GPT's like mealy mouth um, responses <laughs> that. I don't know. Maybe your market is like people that really like verbal abuse. So that what is it they they're doing like the the um what is that training where you like rejection therapy? Yeah, like uh-huh. you wanted to do rejection <laughs> therapy. I don't know. I just came up right. with it, but like some sort of like subculture that really cares about getting abused verbally. <laughs> and so so like obviously chat gpt wouldn't be up for that and so you need to fine tune it or like train train some like the, do the human reinforcement learning through human feedback for mm-hmm. for rejection therapy so maybe but i mean that's obviously a small market so maybe there's right. like a bigger market that's for that and so i was thinking that like along the lines of that like maybe if i were to draw the analogy with like smartphones or like even os's like uh, when microsoft windows came out like what are all the things that you can do with software and so they took kind of the big stuff like 
PowerPoint, like basically mm-hmm. the Office suite, right? Excel, PowerPoint, uh, Word, and those are what made them like really useful on a desktop environment that people were doing work on, and then everybody yeah. else got scraps. And so, what <clears throat> what were the things that people did that made money, but Microsoft didn't want or wasn't able to get. Obviously, there was stuff like the browser and the internet. They caught on to that too late, but that was like an entire new market. But I think there were other things that were like a lot more specialized um, software that was specialized for a particular domain. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like they, I mean, they eventually ended up uh, doing a video player, but I don't know. Did they clone WinApp? I guess I was subsumed into their like Windows Media Player into or whatever the, into the OS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they did a lot of that. I think the they they were so dominant in that era. It's hard to think of of a good example. And so when the internet came about, then that's when I could say, oh, okay, like Google didn't subsume everything. So I think there is a universe of things that like are outside the domain of open AI, or like even in terms of like smartphones. Like Apple didn't decide to start a cab company; like they left that to Uber, and same thing yep. with Airbnb, sort of thing. So, so yeah, I mean, I I can imagine something like healthcare, probably healthcare LLM startups and like law LLM startups. OpenAI probably won't touch those. That that's that's my guess. Um, I think that it's not going to be that. It, it's still so early. Like we're thinking about open AI and, and the LLM calls almost in the way that people were thinking about like, um, I don't know, timeshare computing, right? Like you, yeah, like yeah. LLMs are this big thing. They have to live in the big place, the special place. And we oh, all get, you're saying. Yeah. you know, yeah, slices yeah, yeah. at it, right? You, it's expensive to, to, to call and we have to call it over there. But it could be smaller and on local, and that's what you're driving at. So then that can proliferate the number of use cases that you can have, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's 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 exactly where you need it. It's exactly exactly as small as you need it to be, and it can be tuned to the task at hand. And there are many, many different tasks. You don't have to accept the one model, uh, mealy-mouthed model, as you put it, uh, to, to fit it all. Um, and, and I think that's where the advantage is. Like, I don't think we should just accept, I I don't think we're at the place where we need to be making your argument, which is that open AI is like de facto, like going to be dominant and we need to find, um, the sort of arbitrage opportunities. I think that the local LLMs are actually going to provide a disruption so to speak, it's so weird talking about disruption on the order of like weeks and months, like, you know, things that have existed for months or getting disrupted by some other new things. But I think that's what's going to happen. So then I guess the the aspect of LLMs that kind of throws the sort of analysis, in, a wrench into this sort of analysis is that they can learn things quickly on their own. Like all the pace of innovation so far, my understanding is that LLMs have not quite been turned on themselves yet and so maybe the acceleration for chat like gpt5 will just be two months later because they use gpt4 <laughs> to help develop it yeah and and so then 
the counter argument to what I was saying before could just be that maybe open AI will go into law and healthcare because like the thing can learn it mm. and it would be MBD for them to go into it. And so yeah. maybe that's not as much of a moat as we think. And maybe you would have to believe that they won't into move into the world of atoms. So then maybe you got to start a logistics company or something like that. that <laughs> right. I don't know, something of that, that they won't actually touch. So, or build like, I don't know, fusion reactors. I don't know. Maybe they'll buy a fusion reactor startup and then use LLMs to like pursue and advance science in that way. I can, I mean, they've talked about that sort of stuff before, so that might not be too far off. It's hard to think about it. And, I think what we agree on is the integration of LLMs into our current workflows is kind of a no-brainer, um, like mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Like, And at worst, I guess, we'll just heap complexity on top of complexity so that LLMs yeah. are the interface for everything that to just kind of sweep everything under the rug and we hope for better hardware and maybe LLMs can eventually help us design faster hardware so that it can all be run locally. And we're just right. like, whatever, right? Yeah. It, it'll be relatively cheap because like we're thinking about it as this big thing, but maybe it'll be cheap enough that because our computers are so fast. Um, but then I guess the other thing is like where like what's the programming environment? And so maybe this is where there's some work to be done because I can't quite imagine it. And I suspect that there's something better now that we have LLMs to work with, right? We can barely figure out like how to do like multiplayer work with each other. Mm -hmm. And now that we have an LLM that is quite capable, it's like maybe it's like multiplayer with somebody that can touch multiple parts of the programming environment at once to do stuff. Yep. And then I guess lastly is like, where's this thing going to go? Like I kind of laid things out. You're like, no, 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 no. You don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I think uh, I like this discussion. I would say that like my, you know, call to action for our listeners, uh, you know, to, to just wrap it up uh, is that like, uh, I think that, that what is the new, uh, development environment going to be is going to be key. Don't show me any more demos where you have v VS code hooked up to some chat GPT thing. It's like, that's so <laughs> uh, uh, Q1 2023. It's, Q1. it's Q2 2023 now. And like, we need to move on to the future. Uh, and so that's how fast things are moving in the space. I think we need to get not just AI nerds, but I think that, that, um, Xerox Park level of like fusion between systems developers and and UI innovators to really rethink how are we going to build software? It's not going to look like Visual Studio, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I get the sense that not to say that that stuff will go away. I think that has a long lifetime because there is value in the programming languages that we have, but I suspect that the environments that we have to do it will finally not just be text is, is my sense. Like, but we have to, like, it's hard, but one of us, like some among us would have to show something that is 
a compelling 10x better than what we have today in order for that to be a reality, obviously, along some yeah. dimension that people talk about. And we talk about the abstract because really we're just saying we don't know. <laughs> like we, we can't. And so I think what what would need, probably need to happen is just people try a lot of different experiments. And by the time you guys hear this news, like we'll try to get this episode out as quickly as possible. But by the time you hear this, maybe this is all old news and everything has changed, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think this has been an interesting discussion. Uh, it's different than our usual episodes because, you know, we're usually talking about uh, a known concept that has a sort of legible shape and, and this one it's just moving way too fast to, to really even have any idea but um, if you found this type of episode to be helpful kind of a quick and dirty what's on our minds type thing uh, let us know in the comments uh, like this video uh, subscribe we're on YouTube Apple Podcasts Spotify anywhere else uh, that you can find podcasts and also write us a review to let other Technionistas on board. Uh, with that, this is Shri. And this is Will. See you next time. Bye.